Welcome to the Prime Domino Podcast, presented by Rob Worth, consultant to public sector chief executives and author of the book, Beat the Cuts, How to Improve Public Services and Easily Cut Costs. You can request a free copy of the book at www.beatthecuts.co.uk. And here's Rob Worth. I'm here with Benjamin Taylor, a managing partner of Red Quadrant. Thanks very much for being with us today, Ben. It's a pleasure, Rob. I know that you started many years ago in, on the front line of public services. Can you um, tell us a little about how your experiences there developed into Red Quadrant? Sure. I mean, I actually started out on the front line in, in, in my first three jobs. The first thing I ever did after university was I was a voluntary, no, I was a casual carer for the Spinal Injuries Association. So I was on the front line of personal care and at the end of a long chain of uh, not very perfect administration. Um, and then I worked for a, uh, a charity um, in central London for Rally International, sending underprivileged kids at risk uh, on these overseas expeditions that typically people like uh, the young princes of the British royal family uh, go on. And that was so poorly paid that it looked like an easy and well-paid job to work on the front line in a local authority advice centre, which probably goes to show you know, how naive I was early in my career. Um, but there's a couple of things about those two jobs, the charity job and working at Shepherds Bush Advice Centre, Shabak, um, as it was, that I'm really quite proud of, that led to me thinking about organisational improvement, about processes, about systems and, and, and those kind of things. So you know, those are stories I love to tell, so if, you, if, you, if you'd like to hear a bit about that, I'm very happy to go into that. I think that shaped a lot of it. And I've got some good stories about changes you made at the Advice Centre. Sure. Uh, I mean, the really interesting thing there was that I had, a, I had a very good manager and I had absolute um, control of the coordination of the centre. So I was kind of a security guard, receptionist, filing clerk, um, uh, doing the rotor and, uh, and everything else. I was reflecting on this that actually the, 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 the thing about being in control of administrative systems, uh, and I'm very proud of having learned from the bottom up and, and worked in that kind of admin role, but the thing about being in control yourself is that you don't actually learn to work as part of a team. So it probably suits you better to be a consultant than to be a, a manager. But I started off with quite small things. It was a very chaotic um, organisation. There was about six or seven advisors. They gave different advice, uh, each of them. And we were open very strange opening hours, 10 till 3, uh, Monday, Tuesday and Thursday, and uh, five till, uh, no, 3 till 5, and then an evening session occasionally on Thursdays, something like that, the kind of random hours that were around uh, in those days. As soon as we opened the front door, a huge group of the most uh, needy, underprivileged kind of people from Shepherds Bush came into the waiting room um, and started to wait for quite a long time to see an advisor. And this was in the sort of busiest days of asylum seeker uh, arrival in central London. So we had, I think, 137 different languages spoken. Wow. Um, it was really people from all around the world with really serious problems. What, the way that the system was structured there was that people would have to wait up to five hours and then they would see an advisor, but it usually wouldn't be the right advisor for their particular problem, you know, welfare, rights, housing, employment, uh, those kind of things, because there was only a certain number of advisors on the rotor to do the public appointment duty for each session. Um, and the, the reason for that was that it was so bloody stressful to do the public appointment duty. So the advisors would limit the amount of time that they did per week just to sort of keep their sanity and be able to do their job. 
But the consequence of all of that was that the member of the public would wait three or four hours, see somebody for a maximum of 20 minutes, because we had to ration the time to get through the waiting list. Um, And then they'd write a kind of poorly informed, rushed kind of file note, which it was then my job to make sense of, to book an appointment with an appropriate advisor outside the public appointment times, and to file the file. And the consequences of that kind of system were that I spent a long time doing the schedule and the rotor because people had a limited number of private appointments as well as a limited amount of public time uh, that they would do the caseload. I then posted out the appointments to the members of the public and of course I had to specify when the appointment was. So very often they didn't receive the appointment. It was only after about three months that we discovered that I was in Shepherd's Bush at the Advice Centre and the post was going down to Hammersmith to the Town Hall, maybe waiting around for half a day or a day, then being franked second class, then coming back to the post office sorting room in, uh, in Shepherd's Bush and then going out maybe two or three days later to the members of the public. So sometimes they got their appointment uh, after it had already happened. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how these little practical things can really hold up. Absolutely, and, and I started at the very incremental improvement level. You know, the, the kind of improvements that I started to make were dealing with the system as was. So I designed a, a nice little printed card template with very plain English and a template on the computer so I could do the appointments through a sort of mini database system and I could print out all the appointments a little bit more efficiently than writing them all out in a scruffy way and they went, you know, the address went in the window envelope. This must seem very archaic to people who've been brought up on uh, on computers if anybody of uh, that uh, generation is listening. And we managed to get a deal with the council to send out our appointments first class post. Um, I even purchased the sort of Samizdat book of first class stamps so I could actually send the urgent ones myself. Little incremental improvements like that. And one big thing that made a real difference without really shifting the system was that I began to do proper flow data analysis of waiting times. So we instituted a system where we bought a book of cloakroom tickets, the little tear-off numbered tickets Mm -hmm. that you get in a raffle. And I would give people the ticket when they came through the door and I would note and then I would note the time that they were actually seen by the advisor. So I was able to produce uh, some spreadsheets, which I still have to this day, and I occasionally use in training simulations of waiting times. Uh, And it was a kind of simple, uh, I didn't know what a run chart was in those days, but it was the equivalent of uh, of a run chart. And I then began, because I had data, to be able to predict. So I was able to say, hello, Mrs. Miggins, or... uh, Mrs. Ali, more likely, you know, it's going to be at least three hours before we can see you because there's this many people waiting. So you can go off and do your shopping and you can come back. And by the way, I'll hold your place in the queue if if we speed up and you miss your slot, you know. I also began to get much better at triage. So what used to happen is people would wait for four hours, go to see an advisor only to be told, you have to go to the other advice centre down the road because we don't give that kind of advice here. So I used to ask a few screening questions. So all of that made the whole process as is much slicker but it was still a fundamentally bad, you know, underlying system. Right. And because of these repeat appointments, the files became really important. So sometimes I wouldn't have filed the file in time for the next appointment for it to be found. Right. Sometimes it'd be on the massive pile, uh, untidy pile on the manager's desk to do quality control on things. Um, So that was another impediment to the system that became a really big issue. And we thought about introducing an expensive scanning system. The guy from legal services in the town hall came and said we could knock through the floor of the advice centre and build a two-storey mechanical file retrieval system (laughs) into the wall. (laughs) So the really big breakthrough came when uh, the manager and I uh, planned a little bit of manipulation 
um, for a good cause. And we ran an away day with all of the advisors. We somehow, I don't know how we did it, but we somehow managed to persuade the advisors to do a trial for two weeks only of scrapping the obtuse opening hours and opening nine to five, Monday to Friday. They said it would be chaos. And they said, you know, the, the sort of the perspective was, well, I'm scheduled to do, rotor to do eight hours of public appointments per week at the moment. And that, you know, nearly kills me. It's incredibly stressful. It's a smelly, big waiting room of people with all kinds of problems. And then you don't have time to deal with them, yada, yada, yada. Very difficult. So imagine what 40 hours a week of that could be, could be like. Right. And of course, as I guess some of your listeners might have already leapt to the conclusion, it wasn't like that. The first day we opened at 9am, yes, 30 people did come in and it did take four hours for the last person to be seen. But even within the course of that very first week, the whole system changed completely. We were levelling the flow. So yeah. people would pop by, they would see 12 people in the waiting room, they'd think, well, I'll do my shopping or I'll go to the doctor or whatever else and I'll come back when it's quiet. So we just got a very even, persistent drip feed of demand into the centre. The atmosphere was much calmer, and what happened was when somebody came in, I could then find out what advisor they really needed to see, and nine times out of ten, I would nip up to the mezzanine where the advisors hid away from the public and get the right person, pull them down, get them to meet the uh, member of the public, and they could spend as long as it took, up to two hours, three hours. And they would go through the whole thing and maybe not solve the case, but get all the data they needed, set up all the appointments with you know, financial advisors or whatever else. And then the filing was just for archives. So we didn't have that whole flow and mess and complexity and noise and turbulence of trying to schedule people for appointments, that, private appointments that they probably couldn't come to, and of trying to recycle the filing through the system fast enough to catch up with the uh, demand. So effectively, there was some collusion of the customer's positive way scheduling themselves uh, in the gap. But my hypothesis there is that we took away a lot of the white noise, and we were just able to expose the underlying level of demand, which without all the recycling within the system was completely manageable within the organisation. So it was a huge breakthrough in something that, I'm, I'm, as you can tell, I'm still proud of to this day. Right. The really tragic thing is that I went back a few years later and asked them how things were going. And they said, well, the manager left and uh, somebody else stepped up and then demand increased and then we lost an advisor and we, you know, we began to get quite squeezed. So we went back to the old way of doing things. Right. <laughs> Very common. And at that point, were you following a method? Had you done some reading, or is this just no? This was this was instinctive, pure instinctive brilliance. Um, <laughs> I mean, it just seemed to make sense to me. You know, I, the great thing was that I was at the sticky end of uh, of everything. People would run in and say, "Where are the NI two four four forms?" And, you know, very stressful. I don't know over egg it, but it was a dirty, unloved kind of place. But it was this kind of emergency room environment of constant crisis. Yeah. Um, so I had to fix the systems, I had to find out why the fire alarm kept going off, whether we had a contract for it, um, I had to explore things for myself. I instituted a simple Kanban system for the stationery, right. where at as people time, pulled out, I didn't know it was Kanban, but now, but now I know, <laughs> and maybe it wasn't, but at the time, basically when people took the forms, when we got 10 from the bottom, a slip would appear, one they pulled off the next, uh, the last form, which said, please put this slip in Ben's in-tray, um, and it had the order reference number for the new set of forms, so I would just process that as part of the flow. So it put all of those things into flow. So 
it's, it's like when I try and explain lean or agile or something um, to my wife and I sort of stumble over it for about an hour or so and then she said, but that's just common sense. Well, you know, it kind of is and it kind of was. I was just following common sense. I was just trying to work out what kind of... But I guess I saw things a bit as a flow, a bit as a system, a bit as a process, um, somehow, naturally, uh, or for some other reason. Um, and that, that really helped. Okay. Um, part of that came... I'll, I'll try and make this one really short. When I was at Rally International, we had to send these young kids after um, a series of uh, personal development programs on three-month overseas expeditions. So the entire focus of, of my bit of Rally International, and again, I was the bottom of the pile, the coordinator, the administrator, and we had a great manager. The entire focus was we've raised the fundraising to send X number of kids on each of these expeditions a year, you know, to Mozambique, uh, to Kinabalu, to all these different amazing places around the world. So we have to fill those slots. So we were trying to squeeze people through the process to produce the right batch size at the end of people who'd been through the training, who'd done the fundraising, who hadn't got sent to prison or otherwise blotted their uh, copybook, and who'd bought the kit to go on this kind of overseas expedition. And it became incredibly stressful because these people we were working with had chaotic lives. And we were asking them to do, for the sake of argument, four away week or weekend training sessions every two months to build up to this expedition and do fundraising at the same time. And their lives just didn't permit for that kind of flow and organisation to suit our needs. The breakthrough there came uh, was when we moved away from this kind of batch processing concept, as I now would think of it, and into something which was about stock management. So we said, well, why is it that we're starting everybody exactly 12 months before the expedition that, they, that we plan for them to go on. And that means that there's an absolute critical path of them hitting every single one of those milestones over the 12-month period, and we're getting dropouts, unsurprisingly. Right. First of all, I started trying to recycle the dropouts back into the system, which helped, because people who'd done three courses but then didn't make their expedition, they could get on the next course and do the next expedition that was up. But that made me think, well, there's something cyclical here. So why don't we just build up stocks at each of the four stages of people who've been through the previous thing successfully and are just about ready to move on to the next? So we split the dependency from those one, two, three, four personal development sessions and, and, and the individual uh, expedition overseas. And we just ran the first introductory session at regular points every year. So we just were pushing people into the stock. And then we were able to do the same with development workshop two, three, and four. And we always had enough people then to go on the expedition. Right. Yeah. So, it, again, I'm making it sound more complex than it is because we were doing it a stupid way. You know, <laughs> we were assuming that we could get 100% rolled output successfully through the, the four workshops. But it turned out that if we had an expedition that we wanted to send 12 people on, then just starting 20 people with a prediction of dropout rates didn't work either. Right. So that was the point, that we had to think about having a stock of people ready to go on each expedition instead of trying to predict the failure rates of the process. So I guess that's, that's partly where it came from, yeah. Okay. But I, I, I loved those early things, and I, and I think the value for anybody of starting at the bottom, starting with basic organisational admin, organising and ordering the stationery, if I had my way, I'd really do six months of that. Right. <laughs> it's a great discipline, in my opinion. Okay. Kind of fast forwarding, how did that lead to you starting Red Quadrant? Yeah, um, well, I guess um, Red Quadrant came about uh, about 12 years after that first job. I always had a bit of chip on my shoulder, generally, about life, a bit of a class uh, kind of warrior kind of thing. Um, and part of that was that I thought consultants were absolutely evil. 
Um, but right. uh, but they, yeah. of course, that's still true. That is absolutely true, and uh, and, and I still sometimes play up to that. Occasionally, I can I can do the cheapy thing uh, on demand if uh, if it seems to be valuable. But um, uh, I thought the consultants were people were exploitative, um, were um, uh, unethical, um, uh, and so on and so on. So that's perhaps one of the reasons why I worked in public services. Um, but having worked in public services, as I did for in, in local government, Hammersmith and Fulham, for um, seven, eight years, uh, I began to realise, A, that I liked doing project work, um, that I liked the variety and the, and the change, and B, that consultants actually had something to offer. We brought in some really good people, uh, and I started to think, actually, that it would be a good job that suited me. You know, you get to... You get to try to make some improvements, you get to um, perform and show off and facilitate and present and some of those kind of fun things. There's actual intellectual stimulation in it, which is very rare uh, in a job, I think. Um, and one of the consultants who came in was Dennis Verne. At the time, he was the uh, managing consultant for consultancy at uh, Agilisys, uh, who um, we procured at Hammersmith and Fulham as a strategic partner. I didn't work with Dennis directly, but I went off to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers, very dedicated, very... Uh, warm and fuzzy public sector practice with a lot of people drawn from the sector and then I went to work for a bit of a bit of capita. Um, it was basically over about a year of discussions and dinners with, uh, with Dennis uh, and uh, uh, latterly with um, uh, a friend of his who's a good friend of the firm now, John Malahan, um, that we kind of came up with the idea of starting Red Quadrant and then one day we were in a taxi crossing uh, Waterloo Bridge for back from an appointment in the city and we kind of looked at each other and said, well, why don't we? So uh, that, that was the start of Red Quadrant in, back in 2009. Right. What challenges do you think that chief executives in the public sector are facing and how does, how does Red Quadrant address those? Uh, well, I mean, we just had a, had a dinner last night um, with kind of 30 uh, chief execs, transformation people, senior directors and commissioners. And we were asking exactly these questions. We didn't get a clear answer, so I'm, I'm even less confident now to give, give it a, a, a clear answer. I mean, I'll say two things first off. First is that the obvious challenge is the fiscal squeeze. So you've got 20 or 30% overall budget reductions coming down the line for chief execs, particularly in local government, which has borne the brunt of the cuts every year, year on year. And that's incredibly difficult in any organisation. It does galvanise change. Um, if anybody's ever wanted a burning platform, you know, that's a good example of a burning platform. Um, and you know, in the last five years, people have coped somehow, one way or another. But there's probably 18,000 people who've lost their jobs in local government in that period. So it's been a massive uh, upheaval. The second thing is that sometimes the chief exec is the least important person in these organisations in a way, or they're kind of a figurehead. One very famous chief exec was referred to uh, over dinner last night as uh, eventually having taken up a role as um, uh, visiting uh, emeritus chief executive. Uh, you, know, right. you can get drawn into this cycle of um, working with members, uh, raising the profile of the organisation, um, doing the sort of national body work and all the rest. Uh, you know, working with Solis, you know, working with the government, um, and very rarely spend time in your organisation. And sometimes that either makes no difference or it's quite beneficial for the organisation. Right. I mean, the chief exec in a local authority is in a really unique place between the members and the organisation. They're usually the, the, the official, um, uh, what's the word, um, 
official I know, lead lead of all lead officer of all the, of all the officers in the organisation. So they're subject to a, a, an awful lot of pressures, and I see them creating a culture and an enabling or disabling environment. But I don't often see them successfully leading change in the organisation. If that makes sense. Okay. And um, um, why is that? Is, is it because it's they, they should delegate it, or they do delegate it? I think it's because they do, do think, delegate. Do you think they ought to delegate it? I I wish I lived in an environment where there was one leader who was clearly the leader of the whole thing. But if you look at the complexity of what a local authority does, uh, according to the local government service, there's 1,111 customer-facing services, and then a whole number of other things. So it's not only that if you look at the, the, the body of people within the authority, they do many different business processes with completely divergent things from, as Barry Quirk used to say, taking children into care and collecting bins, but not on the same round. Um, you know, from collecting bins to taking children into care to um, processing uh, planning applications. There is such diversity in that base that it's not one coherent business. It's an agglomeration of different businesses doing different things. But then if you add to that the challenges of economic regeneration, um, of, of real governance uh, issues and pol political decision making, uh, within the organisation of community enablement. Now those things ought to come together. Of course there ought to be connections between them all, but especially in the era of partnership working where you know the guy who uh, I was working with a couple of weeks ago who's in charge of um, managing traffic flow in Bristol, uh, which is a hell of a job by the way, it's a very difficult place overloaded with traffic. Um, uh, and with a, with an, uh, a very old um, road system constrained by lots of water, he can't do his job without the active support and building a kind of coalition, not only within five other bits within Bristol City Council, but also with the police, uh, also with the outsourced bus companies, also with the Passenger Transport Authority, uh, and so on and so on and so on. So I don't think any chief exec uh, can um, really... Uh, take responsibility for directing change in all of those areas and I think a wise chief exec would create the culture and enable that change and give real strong delegation to a bunch of people to lead different bits of the, of, of the kind of transformation work if that makes sense and the good ones do tend to do that. Okay. So the driver behind this <laughs> podcast is to try and ask the question what's the best first thing that a chief executive ought to do to transform an organisation. I suppose, just take the part about transforming an organisation, what mm. does that mean to you? I think, well there's two ways into that Rob probably. Um, first is a thing that I'm increasingly becoming clear about and I illustrate it with a little um, slightly jokey diagram of three or four different worlds, that what tends to happen in organisations is you get a natural separation of people into different worlds. So you've got customer world where we all live, where we all spend our time. You've got service world where people are actually doing the value interactions with the environment, i.e. they're serving customers, right. or they're meeting customer needs, or they're doing something to support it. You've got management world where people are concerning themselves with the structure and organization of the organization itself. 
and you've got political world where people are making policies and making uh, decisions at, at that kind of political level. And there's probably a whole bunch of other worlds that we could right. uh, we could add into that picture if we really wanted to. And of course, they're replicated across the police and the NHS and all the other partner organisations. Those worlds tend to get separated and start to respond to their own drivers. I suppose there's a bit of systems thinking in this in a way and start to follow their own incentives and, and you know separate out. Um, we even say that customer world is divided from the front uh, from from the from the uh, uh, service world by the front line, which is a military analogy, to defending against the oncoming uh, onslaught of the customers. So one really big intervention, if you can find ways to do it, and there are a number of methods which can be very helpful in this way, but it's never the method, it's always the application, is to try to find a way to get the people from across all of those different worlds, those different systems, focused on the same data and seeing the same picture in the same kind of way, building a commonality of language, building a, something that may be just actually rooted in the empathy that we all feel when we see a customer having a really shitty experience and going through multiple loops and going through complexities, just trying to sort out something really fundamental in their lives. So getting everybody to see what's happening to the customers in the organisation, to where we're creating value, or, or what's happening in the customer world, in people's lives, in citizens' lives, uh, as they're trying to live them and we're trying to not get in the way. That's one of the most powerful things you can do. And Agile can help with that. Uh, prototyping can help with that. I dare say that conceivably, you know, good IT systems that share really good information can help with that. I've just never seen that kind of thing happening. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other most critical thing that I think a chief executive can do is take the responsibility that is theirs for shaping and creating the culture of the organisation. You know? So we're um, absolutely clear that you know, the way that people viscerally within and outside the organisation respond to the practices of leaders, the way they behave, um, the symbolism the, the, and the human systems that get set up, right. whether that's the HR system within the organisation or the homelessness assessment system that you know, is facing out into the real world. People have human gut feeling reactions to that and they share them and they, they socialise them in stories. That's, that's what I think creates the, the culture of the organisation and the culture of the citizens responding to the organisation. And it's the leader at the top of the organisation who has the ultimate responsibility for shaping that culture. So they need to get really smart about understanding, living in the minds of their followers, living in the minds of the public, understanding how the followers are going to receive changes they make in practices, in systems, in the symbolism of the organisation, right. and making sure that, they, that they're learning from their mistakes in doing that, because there will be many, and that they're deliberately trying to shape those in a positive way. If, you, if, if I may, that brings us on to a really interesting point that relates back to chief executives. You know, who is the leader of the whole organisation for local government? Is it actually the chief executive? Or is it the political leader or mayor of the council? Okay. And I don't know what the answer is to that. Okay. One of the great things that came out of the discussion uh, last night was you have to have politics. 
you actually have to, if it's a political organisation that is there democratically to help people in the local area to make better decisions about how they want to lead their lives and facilitate achieving that, then you have to have politicians with an ideology, um, and I mean that in a positive sense, a coherent set of real beliefs and hypotheses about human behaviour and what makes people happy. And I think the chief executive has to get with the politicians and get on board with that. It's not some big happy clappy vision. It's actually a belief about a direction of travel that we should take that will enable people to have more control over their lives. And I think if you can get that right, that will naturally flow into that culture shaping of the organisation. And actually, because politicians do have to think about the mind of the voter, and they do have to spend quite a lot of time in citizen world because they have surgeries and they have people writing to them and they get complaints out of the organisation. Most people are cynical about this, but they're quite well placed to do that. Yeah, no, it's interesting, isn't it? Because with your diagram, there's a kind of a you know, custom world and then service world and management world. Yeah. And then political world. Yeah. By the way, I don't think you'd ever go into, into running theme parks because... <laughs> <laughs> But there's a kind of a funny, sh there's a shortcut from customer world to political world, isn't there? In the yeah, there is. In, yeah. In, in yeah. Elect, certainly local government for elections. Yeah. But well, for elections. But the, but the only problem is, it, but it's a very, it's a very lagged thing. Yeah. Is that years go, years can go by before you get to. Well, citizen can, can that's true. That's make true. A, make a difference yeah. certainly at the at the, um, at at the ballot, ballot box, box. Yeah, but but the there is a shortcut from there's a, there are many shortcuts from customer or citizen. I prefer to say citizen these days. I think even though I. I uh, fought for customer for many years, but uh, citizen world into political world, um, what will happen is that the demand that the organisation is blind to, the signals from customer world, citizen world, that the organisation is not listening to, will show up in complaints, will show up in councillor surgeries. Those signals that bounce out back into the environment, they'll show up on the canvassing, on the, on the doorstep, if people are minded to listen, and politicians have an incentive to listen. Organisations do as well, but it doesn't mean they always do listen. So, you know, there is a short circuit that's less than the kind of four-year electoral cycle uh, as well. You know, we work on projects together and we were listening to a, a senior business change manager, I won't say who it is, who said that they spent a day and a half yeah. dealing with complaints from the customers. That's so a this strategic is director at the top of yeah, an organisation, A day and absolutely. a half dealing with the complaints from the public. Even I was staggered by that, but it's probably incredibly consistent yeah. across the senior leaders in, 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 in public service. Yeah. That's only the complaints that are serious enough to bubble up yeah. that far. That's, yeah. that's, not, that's not every single complaint. Absolutely. And the problem for transformation is that people really normalise themselves to that. It's the body in the hallway. You know, after a certain amount of time, the first few days it seems really weird to have a dead body in the hallway, but you know, after a certain amount of time, as humans, we do adapt to anything to very strange things. And there's a lot of very, um, uh, I want to say, unfortunate or maladaptation that has happened in public service organisations because people need to survive because people need to manage their stress levels. But it is not normal and it's not inevitable, it, although it is inevitable the way the organisations are currently structured, that this strategic kind of director would be dealing with a day and a half of complaints because the organisation you know, is supposed to be listening to and responding to citizen demand. Mm. I mean, we, you know, let's be really clear, public services find it much harder to do that in some ways because they are constrained by legislation and therefore it becomes immediately and implicitly obvious that their job is to carry out 
the specifications of the legislation, whereas the really good ones will say our job is to work within the constraints of the legislation to help citizens have the lives that they want to have, right. which is a very different way of conceptualising things. One of the things that may be happening in some public service organisations now is that people may be saying it's just too hard to turn this super tanker around in the time that we have. So we have to be building new organisations that really meet citizen demand in new, different ways and be transferring people across to them, or voluntarily so, and allow the old organisation to just wither on the vine. Don't be doing directive change in the organisation. There's only so much we can do, and some people really have given up on doing the same thing better. I'm not sure that I have, but I can see the attraction. But we need to find new ways of doing things. And that might not be the council or, or any other public sector organisation um, uh, having the idea and setting things up. It might be the council being um, open enough to understand that the community and the voluntary sector and the business sector, you know, to welcome real contestability in and to bring in that kind of pattern that you get in the private sector. Um, it's not that the private sector is more innovative, it's not that the private sector listens to customers better, it's that things have a bigger chance of dying off in the private sector if, if they don't meet those conditions. So to actually allow things to die off and transfer into better solutions that may not be owned by the local authority, that may not be owned by the public sector at all, may be a really important ingredient in change in the future. Right. It's quite scary stuff. Though. So the other possibilities, mutualisation and... Um, yeah. All of those things tend to be very guilty of putting the cart before the horse. Right. Having a great delivery idea and saying, right, where can we apply this delivery idea? Right. It's a solution in search of a problem. Okay. You know? So um, it's, it's a structural solution that is it's really a solution. embedded in the, the needs of what people... Yeah, it's, it, it's important. It's a great thing to have as part of the portfolio. And we've seen some very... And have been involved in helping some very successful mutuals. But yeah, it's a, it's, it's a structural solution and... As soon as you go out, even if you have quite a big toolkit of structural solutions and say, let's find some problems and see which of our solutions fits the problem, you're already onto a losing pathway, I, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's, you know, at a lower level, you could say similar thing about change tools or lean tools. You could. You could have a, yeah. you could, it's easy to apply those tools. You know, go, I've got a box of tools, I'm going to go and use them. Yeah. But, but similarly, on a, on a bigger structural way, you could do, you could do exactly the same it's thing. It's exactly the same model, I agree. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And um, so I think that, you know, better and deeper exploration of the question, maybe some kind of positive deviance inquiries, finding out where the thing has been solved already and getting innovation going in a way that takes big risks at a very small scale. So it's a positive, de positive deviance is... Positive deviance, I could tell you about, uh, about it in length, we probably haven't got time, but the essence of it is that in any given population um, facing the same conditions, there are some people who are right at the positive end of the bell curve and some people who are in the middle, most of the people in the middle, and some people at the negative end. And if you get the people in that population to study the positive deviance, the ones who fall on the positive side of the bell curve, and understand the difference that makes a difference. What are they doing differently that allows them to succeed in the same conditions and with the same resources as everybody else? Then everybody else in the population, because they've studied it and learned for themselves, will start to model that kind of positive behaviour and achieve the same positive outcomes. Um, so it's something that holds out a lot of hope um, for 
real positive um, kind of intrinsically driven change. And I'm just using that as an example. All I'm saying is um, there needs to be more you know, appreciative inquiry, going out and understanding what the problem are, opening up lots of possible solutions, um, and uh, holding very lightly any of those methodologies, any of the belief that we should be the delivery organisation, we should be the controlling organisation, uh, that mutualisation is an answer, that outsourcing is an answer, any of those kind of things. So bring this back to kind of a more practical approach. If, yep. Where have you seen somebody, a senior manager or chief executive or whoever, leader of a council maybe, who decided they wanted to change something? What, what did they do to start that off? That where, where it was, it's never finished, is it? But where it's, it was successful? Yeah. And it could a client or, or otherwise? No, sure. And the hard thing as a, as a consultant and somebody who's trying to be um, honest is that when you're close to things, you see the warts and you see all the problems and you see all, all of the challenges. And one of the hard things in a way as well is that usually the organisations that are very successful um, have quite a bit of top-down directive, this is how it's going to be changed or at least those leaders have clearly defined the bits which are non-negotiable and will not negotiate about them. So there's always that hard element in amongst all the nice, soft, fluffy, appreciative, helping people design the future for themselves stuff. Dennis' research, I hope you'll interview him one of these days on, on your podcast, shows that, Dennis Vern, my, my business partner, shows that the successful change is very clear but minimises the bit that's non-negotiable and lets people choose the rest for themselves. So one really interesting example is in the work we did over a period of um, four or five years with London Borough of Hillingdon. We developed with them a methodology which was based on agile prototyping, end-to-end -end service prototypes. Um, so really getting something up and running within a period of about two weeks of intensive work, following a whole bunch of discovery and data gathering and understanding that delivered the service in a very different way, that was a prototype, a test, the thing that could be destroyed at a moment's notice if it didn't work. Um, and when it did work and when we iterated and got it to work, transitioning people across into that organisation rather than rolling it out into the rest of the existing organisation. So really making a transition. And you know, there's some great stuff about that and we actually got it written into the HR procedures that it didn't count as a union consultation requiring uh, reorganisation if you were put in a prototype. The limitations of that, of course, were that people were still in the same culture, in the same overall organisation, with the same IT, the same corporate recharges, the same limiting conditions uh, and possibly enabling conditions. That there was a lot of directive um, management involved in that, in forcing people to do it, and sometimes the middle managers were the ones who, who felt the, the, the squeeze then. And also that that was about doing the things better, maybe in really radically innovative ways, but taking the customer demand as expressed as the, as the starting point. Now that's not a bad place to start, getting a clear signal from the citizen about what they need right now and trying to meet it and cut out all the crap and all the uh, waste in between. But it will only take you so far um, in terms of really transformational, innovative change. Having said that, I go into a lot of um, clients these days and they say, hi Benjamin, you know, um, so we've done lean, we've done process improvement, we've done systems thinking, uh, these, pretty soon they'll be saying we've done agile and uh, you know, what have you got next? Um, you know, 
People who say we have exhausted all the possibilities of the easy, the standard, the traditional process improvement and whatever else, it's almost always wrong. It's almost always true. You could still go back in to any organisation and do basic organisational restructuring, process improvement and save lots of money still. So, you know, the idea that we've exhausted one chain and we need to move to the next is not quite right, but we do need to be moving to the next more innovative, more emergent, more, less, more, more hard to understand solutions. So, so the work I'm doing in Bristol at the moment is in, that, is in that risky space of we don't know what the answers will be and there's a lot of push for answers, there's a lot of push for savings and they need to achieve big savings, it's a non-negotiable. So how, what we're navigating at the moment and, and, and the purpose of the, of the, of the programme is to train the second tier managers, they're called service managers but it's the team managers below them who manage the actual services, to train those people in consultancy skills, in agile, in discovery, in iterative prototyping, in managing a backlog, in, in, in managing a roadmap, in doing continual change to their service to iterate it and to improve it for the citizen and just to save a lot of money. So that's unpredictable. Uh, it's very hard to see uh, what will happen and we're facing all of the usual challenges of how you are creating and shaping culture in that kind of context and how you rub up against the existing mechanisms, the existing culture. Um, but it's along the right lines. It's along the lines of saying uh, we actually need to do real delegation, give real authority to the people who are in charge of the frontline services. And they see that largely as what they call step one. Uh, Max Wide, the, uh, who's uh, the uh, strategic director there, um, step one of change, doing, doing things better. But my vision is that that actually leads into, as you begin to iterate, as you begin to respond to citizen need and look out into behaviour change, into uh, demand management, into citizen world, uh, it holds the seeds of really innovative uh, ways of doing things in the future. So that's a really interesting example that we're just only just getting our teeth into now in the first kind of six months of doing it. Right. And stepping back to your, your model, what do you think is the best way to, to get people to understand the four citizen service management political world. So they just kind of get them together and see how things cut across those. Absolutely, those yeah. yeah, to, to get, any, to get any, the same kind of picture. Is there any good way of approaching that or is it? I mean, I think, I think the principles that are now being unique. expressed as agile and which, you know, contain significant elements of, uh, of, of lean um, and, you know, the, the worst of service design um, is uh, like a simplified form of, uh, of doing some kind of lean process improvement. But the best of it, the best of Agile, the, 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 the underlying principles, is about showing the whole system how the whole system works. So uh, that sounds very obtuse, doesn't it, now I say it out loud. But if you get people at all levels in the structure of the organisation and the citizens together, and you get them to do some real work on what really happens, ideally in the workplace, what really happens to the citizen as they come through the organisation and where that fits in citizens' real lives. Then, and usually, as soon as you do any kind of customer journey mapping, you realise that your organisation is not the be-all and end-all, it's just a staging point on a journey of misery or of, <laughs> or of slight irritation. Getting people in the room and the principles of show, don't tell, of don't do project reports but bring people in live to understand what's actually happening in the process, actually happening in the project, in the, in the work that you are doing, is a really powerful way of doing that. Ways into that, you know, 
doing customer journey maps, doing mystery shopping, uh, doing, uh, God knows if anybody does it anymore. I used to plug it for years and years and nobody ever took it up, but doing back to the floor um, type of exercises are ways of knocking people out of the assumptions that it's safe and comfortable to work and live in management world or so, in the political world. So in that you world. mean taking people out of their conference rooms and offices and get them Yeah, ideally, but even if, I mean, I was just saying last night, the biggest intervention I ever did uh, 10, 12 years ago in Hammersmith and Fulham uh, in our customer first program and possibly the biggest thing I've ever done in my career in local government transformation and you do a lot of work and you get a little transformation but it's worth it when you do was at Hammersmith and Fulham um, I literally telephoned all 12 of the council's advertised hotline numbers and there were 12 at the time and I recorded and then transcribed the calls and there was what was called the Customer First Board with the Chief Executive and the Leader of the Council, who I worked directly for, and a lot of senior directors and so on. And I was a bit naughty. I didn't circulate this paper in advance, but I handed it out on the day. And so everybody around the table just read what the actual customer experience of phoning the council was actually like. And it seems like such an incredibly obvious thing. But, you know, I rang the Smarter Borough hotline and they answered, uh, DSO3, can I help you? Direct Services Labour Organisation, num part, part number three. And I said, is this a Smarter Borough hotline? They said, oh yeah, yeah I suppose so. Uh, and I'd like to report some rubbish on the, on, uh, on, in Bishop's Park after the bank holiday weekend. I said, right, well, that's DSO2. We'll put you through. And then they put me through to DSO2. And, you know, it went on and on. And there was a point in the call where the person asked me, um, is the litter on grass or hard standing? because it's a different maintenance contract. And, you know, this is the reality of organisational life. Um, some of those stupidities don't exist anymore, but there are new and uh, continuing stupidities that people need to be exposed to. Nobody woke up in the morning and thought it would be a good idea to route a customer in that way through those calls. We just built our organisations according to our needs. And there was uproar around the table. Um, and that was a big shift, in, I believe, in the customer service of Hammersmith and Fulham and in the willingness to embrace change. And it made a connection for the politicians between the experience of the customer and the votes that they were going to get at the next election and how they might make a difference there. The chief exec was very unhappy with me for a, little, a very short period of time. Uh, very nice chap. He doesn't hold the grudge for long, thank God. Um, but we got a shift. Now, as it turns out, we probably got a shift in the wrong direction because the order went out immediately, tell everybody to answer the phones, and in the next six months, we're going to set up a corporate contact centre. But because change started, and thank goodness, uh, Hammersmith and Fulham and their partners were intelligent enough to close down that contact centre quite soon after they opened it because it turned out to be a bad solution. But we were on track because we knew there was a problem to solve. And everybody had seen the real customer experience with the organisation. OK. So mm -hmm. if people are interested, how can they find out more about you or Red Quadrant and how can they get in touch? Uh, go to redquadrant.com, uh, that's R-E-D-Q-U-A-D-R-A-N-T. Um, you'll see all my contact details on there. We have the phone numbers, uh, mobile phone numbers and email address of, of all of our service leads. Uh, we proudly proclaim we believe in conversation, and we do. I might as well put on there I believe in email because that's my primary method of conversation which some people find good and others find inadequate. You can also find me on social media. I'm usually Antlerboy, which is an anagram of the shorter version of my name, Ben Taylor. It's a very common name, so it's very hard to get on social media. And if you go to bentaylor.com, you'll see all my social media links on there. Thanks, Benjamin. Thanks, Rob. It's been really enjoyable. 
Thank you for listening to the Prime Domino podcast with Rob Worth. Send emails to rob.worth at worthsolutions.com. Read the blog at www.worthsolutions.com forward slash blog and follow Rob's Twitter account at Rob underscore Worth. Subscribe to this podcast by searching for Prime Domino in your favorite podcast provider or click on the iTunes link on any podcast episode page on the website. Remember to request a copy of Rob's book, Beat the Cuts, How to Improve Public Services and Easily Cut Costs by going to www.beatthecuts.co.uk forward slash podcast.